Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this episode of our epic food and cooking podcast, we're going to talk about some supermarket hacks to save money. I've, I'm going to find this really funny, and we'll talk about this as we go through, but I have a very weird take on this, on supermarket hacks to save you money. At the supermarket, we, of course, are going to give you a one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Gesina Bullock Prado, who seems to be everywhere right yep. now. She's got a show on the Food Network, and her book is My Vermont Table. Bruce has that interview with her, which is really actually a giant get to get a Food Network celebrity on our little podcast. That's kind of a cool thing. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. The price of everything is going up. We all know that. Eggs are more expensive, milk's more expensive, chicken, and saving even a little bit. Week after week at the supermarket helps. So there are certain things you need to do. And I'm going to start with the simplest thing. Of course, make a list before you go shopping, but be flexible, right? If something on that list is super expensive, skip it and go for something that's on sale. Mm -hmm. Let sale prices help you decide what you're making for dinner. Right. I think that the thing here, and I want to make a little side before we get into some tips for actually saving money beyond being flexible at the supermarket, which is a great tip, is I think that Bruce and I are old enough that we lived through days of inflation. Uh, we were old enough that we lived through the 70s. I mean, I was a kid, but still, nonetheless, I remember gasoline going up and up and up and up during the 70s. And in the early 80s, I remember when I was, you know, right out of college i remember inflationary pressure everywhere and we did well we talked about it and worried about it it was just kind of a factor of life and mm -hmm. inflation has been so zero for so long that we're back in that and i don't seem to be as wound up about it as some other people and it's not because i don't i, I don't want to save money i do and i am worried about how much heating oil costs and i am worried about how much electricity costs and of course all of that is true but it just reminds me of growing up and my parents endlessly talking about how much gasoline was going up, how much the price of milk was going up, how much the price of butter was going up. Back then, it seemed inflation was part of, a, of our lives. And it seems like it's now, again, part of our lives. Yeah, we've just had the last 20 years of basically low prices and free money. Interest rates have been yeah, low. free so. money has been the real but, deal. Okay, so now... Things have changed and things are getting more expensive. So besides being flexible at the supermarket, here's the number two thing you need to do. You need to get a grocery store app on your phone. The apps are just basically the apps show you the store flyer. And yes, you could pick up the flyers in the store. But by doing it at home, you get to plan ahead of time. And the apps show deals you're not going to get even on the flyer. And the thing now, is, oh wait, I, I want to interrupt now. This is what I think is so funny. So I'm the writer in our pair, and Bruce is the chef. So when we go into recipe testing mode, and even generally, Bruce goes to the supermarket. I am rarely ever in a supermarket. I mean, it is rare. I'll go in if he tells me to pick something up, or if occasionally I'm actually the one cooking dinner for friends, which is you know maybe twice a year. Yes, I go to the supermarkets, or if I want to get some high end cheese, I 
love to have blueberries and a slice of cheese for breakfast. So if I want to get some nice Gouda or stuff like that, then, you know, I'll go in the supermarket and get it. But I'm rarely in there. But I have to say, when I go with Bruce, because sometimes I tag along just as an errand and something to do and to get me off the property, which is hard sometimes because we live so rurally. Um, when I tag along with him, I'm always amazed because he's got his app for the various stores where we live. That would be Stop and Shop in the Big Y. Where you live, it's going to be other stores. But he's got his apps on the phone and he is constantly checking through the apps for <laughs> coupons, for the deals on the app. I am my grandmother. Well, but it's really smart, and I don't actually, I don't actually know how to do this as much as he does. But I have to say that at one of the supermarkets he shops at, you he now actually shops on his iPhone, and by that I mean he picks up the product, scans it through the app on his phone, mm-hmm. it then records the prices with the coupons, and sometimes just just random coupons pop up in the app <laughs> the as he's doing this. The last time we went shopping together, I had gone through the app ahead of time, and what the app does is it shows you private sale coupons that either you or only select people are seeing. You have to click through them to add them to your account before you check out. That's really important. So we get to the checkout, and everything came up on the screen, and at the end it said, personal discount, $2, personal discount, one dollar. looks like what? Why are you getting personal discounts? I it did. took like $12 off I of did. our thing. I'm thinking those were the click-throughs on the app, that if you didn't have the app, you wouldn't have saved that money. And part of the app thing is that they are trying to push law, what they call in the grocery store business, loss leaders mm-hmm. on you. That means that they have an abundance of, let's say, raspberries. And they know that these are going to go bad within, you know, raspberries, they go bad when you look at them. So they're going to go bad within the next few days. And so what they're trying to do is push that abundance of raspberries out to you. But that's great because then I get raspberries to go with my slice of cheese for breakfast instead of blueberries. So they can push them really fast through the app. So if they know they have an abundance of, I don't know, milk and they need to get rid of it because it's super stocked in the stores, then they're pushing that through their apps as sales. And when those go on sale, like chicken and shrimp and chuck roast Mm -hmm. and even berries, Mm -hmm. we buy up those, put them in the freezer, and we we plan our meals around them. And things that don't usually go on sale, like toilet paper and your paper towels, if you have the app, you'll know when they're going on sale. And quite honestly, I see, oh, they're on sale next week, so I won't put them on my list this week, and I'll wait and I'll get them next week. The one I always think of is going into this one store that is by us, well, (laughs) by, is 40 minutes away from us, but going into this one store... (laughs) It is the rural life. But going into this one store and the bags of peeled and deveined frozen shrimp uncooked raw mm-hmm. were buy three, get two free. I still remember this. This was years ago. <laughs> buy three, get two free. Well, of course we did that. But we have a big freezer. Not everybody has. I've got an extra freezer in the basement. But... but if you have an extra freezer, it's a really good idea. Now, milk and eggs have gone up in price a lot. So here's something to pay attention to. When they're on sale, when you see a good deal look for the expiration dates, and then buy a lot of it. Because I buy milk that sometimes has expiration dates that's two months off. And so why not buy enough milk to last me two months if it's on sale? And the same right. thing with eggs. Right. It gives you it's expiration that fair dates. life milk, oh, that, that high protein, low sugar, fair mm-hmm. life milk. And it lasts forever because the sugars are so low and because of its processing. And, you know, it, Bruce is right. When it's on sale, why not buy four containers of it? Because it lasts two and a half months. Yep. So there you go. And when you're checking prices in the supermarket, here's something no one really ever thinks about. So you go to the condiment aisle and you are looking for pickled jalapenos. And there are eight 
different varieties of pickled jalapenos. They're all different prices. The jars are different sizes. So how do you figure out, if you're not brand loyal, how do you figure out which is the cheapest one for you to get? Well, there's a little tag on the shelf under all the bottles. And on that tag, it gives you the price of them. But next to it, it gives you the price per pound. And you could look at those tags, and this goes across the whole supermarket with crackers, with eggs, with ketchup, right. and it gives you the price per pound. And that way you could decide if you want to just buy what's the cheapest per pound, that'll tell you. And if you're cooking for one or two, here's another great hack. Just remember that it is always less expensive per pound to buy a lot of chicken thighs, one of those big trays of chicken thighs, than it is to buy two or three of them. Oh my goodness, yes. Because the big trays are much more economically priced. And I know you say, but I'm just cooking for one or for two. Then get some zip closed bags and when you get home, break it down and put them by ones and twos in those yeah. bags and into your freezer because it is so much more economical. And that two minutes of effort of dumping chicken thighs into plastic bags and freezing them will save you a great deal of money down the road. Sometimes it's just 50%. It's almost half, right. depending upon the store and the sales. Okay, the last thing we're going to talk about is considering canned and frozen produce. Okay, now so much cheaper than fresh. This so is a much hard cheaper. sell to me because I hate canned vegetables. I just do. I grew up on them. I grew up in the convenience world. My mother never met a can. She couldn't boil the hell out of eventually. <laughs> and I just cannot deal with canned green beans. I can't deal with canned... Oh, canned asparagus is one of the worst things in the history of the world. Okay, but canned corn is great. Yeah, canned corn is one of the acceptable Canned items. beans is good. Yes, that's an acceptable item. I probably wouldn't do canned potatoes or oh, canned I've mushrooms. Had I've had them. Slimy. Super slimy. <laughs> slimy. But, but, but according to a Michigan State University study, these canned veggies are calculated to be about 80% cheaper than fresh and even 50% cheaper than frozen. And I think this is, this is one of the things that's interesting right here is that canned vegetables actually have a pretty high carbon footprint because of the processing that's involved in canning them. But frozen vegetables have actually a pretty low carbon mm -hmm. footprint. Now, transportation is a problem and the freezer transportation is indeed a problem. I'm not saying it's as low as fresh vegetables. However, I am telling you that frozen vegetables have a lower carbon footprint than canned. And I'm also telling you, here's the thing that's wild, and I, it's something that always I just think of whenever I'm shopping. The stuff in the produce section is often underripe. They pick it slightly early, and the theory is that it ripens in transit. Whereas if they are going to pick it for freezing, they wait until it is much riper. It has a higher vitamin content. They pick it, and they often flash freeze it now in the fields mm -hmm. so those flash frozen vegetables frozen vegetables often have a higher nutrition value if you can believe it than the fresh stuff the problem here is the breakdown of fiber in the thawing process and uh, the loss of vitamin c those are two problems that are not so good for frozen vegetables but other minerals and vitamins are often higher in frozen vegetables and frozen vegetables save you time too because they're often pre-chopped um, they'll save you mise time if you mise en place that is and chopping and measuring Prep so time for normal people i like frozen vegetables i grew up on frozen vegetables and 
So, I don't know. What can I say? I, I like, like frozen vegetables, too. And I think that frozen vegetables are a great um, addition to especially soups and stews. I don't think they're so great, some of them eaten on their own. Well, but frozen if, onion rings. Yeah, frozen onion rings. But that's not really a ve- <laughs> That's a dessert masquerading <laughs> as a vegetable. It's not really a vegetable. But, I mean, just eaten on their own. I, I never think they're as great as the fresh. But... I can certainly say that thrown into soups and stews, they're sure. they're just absolutely great. Absolutely I mean, great. in fact, frozen okra is way less slimy when you throw it into stews. There's something about it that has changed. Well, you also don't have to deal with it, and you don't have to cut it. You don't have yeah. to wash it. I love that. Yeah, it's true. Okay, before we get to our next one minute cooking tip, the traditional next part of our podcast, let me say that Bruce and I have a book that is out, the Instant Air Fryer Bible. You might want to check that out. We are into air frying big time. We love it so much that, in fact, we're writing another air frying book even as we speak. But the Instant Air Fryer Bible is specifically written if you have a Vortex or Omni air fryer from Instant Brands. But frankly, you can use it with any air fryer because, as I say repeatedly, 350 degrees Fahrenheit is 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 200 degrees centigrade is 200 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing across the board. So you can use it with any brand of air fryer. The Instant Air Fryer Bible. Check it out wherever books are sold. Up next, our one-minute cooking tip. Treat bunches of kale, basil, parsley, cilantro like cut flowers. Mm. Store them in a glass or a mm. vase of water, yeah. and they will stay fresh. Now, you could be real fancy and then put that glass of water in the refrigerator, but I keep it out on the counter, and it stays fresh for days. Yeah, I, I made a big... Iranian dinner. You probably, if you listen to the podcast, you probably heard this back in December. I made this giant Iranian dinner party for friends, and I used a lot of leafy greens, and I had them all in vases mm-hmm. before they went into this. Well, it's supposed to be a soup, and I turned it into a sauce. It's a whole thing. I deconstructed this dish, but it doesn't matter. I kept these greens in big vases around, and they stayed nice and fresh. I bought them at a Middle Eastern market. Oh, about an hour away from where we live, got them home, didn't want them to crap out on me, <laughs> so I put them in water. And I, I also will tell you that it works best to put these things in water. Bruce buys a lot of Asian greens at a Chinese grocery store. It's best if you just snip about, oh, maybe uh, two centimeters or an inch off the bottom of just each Just like one. you would with fresh flowers. Yeah, and then they can soak up the water more effectively. Before we get to Bruce's big interview, let me say that we have a newsletter. You should check it out. It comes out oh, every week, every two weeks. Uh, go to our website, bruceandmark.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. We, we will never, we promise, 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 we will never sell your information in any way. You can always unsubscribe to the newsletter down the road when you have lost interest. I hate being spammed to and unsubscribed to all kinds of things I previously subscribed to. But you can find that on our website, percentmark.com, and subscribe there. I don't even have access to your email. We've set up the account in complete privacy. So it would be great if you wanted to find out more recipes, more free content at our newsletter on bruceandmark.com. 
Up next on segment three of our podcast, Bruce's interview with Cassina Bullet Prado, Food Network Chef's Celebrity, and also the author of a brand new book, My Vermont Table. A huge get for this little podcast to get her to come on. But Bruce's interview is up next. Today we have a really special guest, Cassina Bullock Prado. She is an acclaimed pastry chef, host of the Food Network show Baked in Vermont, and she has her own baking school in Hartford, Vermont, Sugar Glider Kitchen, which is attached to her 18th century farmhouse. Oof. And her new cookbook, Out Soon, is gorgeous and filled with fabulous recipes and called My Vermont Table. Welcome, Gazina. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Your new book, My Vermont Table, is so much more than a cookbook. I can only say it's a love letter to the richness of your life in Vermont. Tell me more about that. Well, uh, first, I love uh, cookbooks that also tell stories. I feel that if you're going to write a recipe, I want to know what is meaningful to you about this thing that you're telling me to make. And so I approach the book that way because I love telling stories about why I make the things I do and what it's like to live here and how it inspires me. When you think Vermont, it's a vibe of comfort, cozy, and kind of a more simple life. And I want to bring that through in the book and to your table. Cooking seasonally has been encouraged by everyone, right? We all say, let's cook seasonally. And you keep this tradition alive in your book and you have it right in the title, Recipes for All Six seasons. So tell me about the undiscovered seasons of Vermont. The two extra seasons that we observe here in Vermont are mud season, which we are, uh, we have been bouncing in and out of lately, where it's that period between winter and spring, where the great thaw comes upon us. And because, and I write about this, we have predominantly dirt roads. The majority of our roads are dirt here, not paved. So you can imagine what happens with a dirt road when there's a big thaw. You have mud. And driving in the winter with ice and snow is no problem for Vermonters or any, you know, anyone that's used to cold weather. Mud is a completely different thing, a totally different thing. So I, when I was a kid, I always say I was promised like the horrors of quicksand throughout my adult, adult life. You know, they always said quicksand will be everywhere. It's like, oh. It was like, it was a very like 80s, 70s, 80s thing. Well, I never actually got to like get caught in quicksand, but mud is the next best thing. Okay, so we have mud season. What's the other one? So the, the next one is stick season. And that is the period between fall and winter. But for us, fall is only so long as the leaves are on the trees. And that does not last long. No, sadly. Sadly. So the second we hit peak, uh, and the peepers are about, which are the the tourists and the people who come to observe our gorgeous leaves. The second we get a storm, those leaves just shake themselves off and we don't have snow yet. What we have when we look up are just a bunch of sticks. So we call it stick season. It kind of coincides with Halloween and spooky season. So it's great to see these eerie trees, no leaves. And then I'm like, I'm in the mood to make all my favorite kind of spooky treats. I want to go into some recipes in your book because the recipes you offer up, so Vermont-centric, so Gazina-centric, you call for a lot of browned butter. I like you say in the introduction, it's not something you can buy and you have to make it. So tell me why you love it so much and give me a quick and easy way to make it. You only need to smell it to fall in love with it. 
It's so wonderful because it takes an ingredient that's already incredibly delicious and the alchemy of just getting it hot on a burner and just, you know, getting those lovely bits of protein, nice and dark, give it a depth of flavor that is like nothing else. It's nutty. It's caramelly. It's like butter at its best. And, and it's incredibly easy to do. And the best way to do it is I recommend getting a much bigger pot than you think you need with much higher sides because butter splatters. Even a small amount can, can find its way up a wall in the most intriguing ways. Like you'll see it a week later and you'll go, what is that? This delicious splatter. But the next thing you do, it, you're going to smell it, obviously, because it smells so wonderfully, but it does take a while. And what you're going to experience is that popping, a lot of, a lot of motion. That's when it's hitting the wall. And you hear like, it's just a very active thing in the beginning, but it's not brown yet. So what you tend to do is you walk away and you're kind of hearing the splattering. The second you don't hear anything else, there's silence. You know, there's mischief happening in that pot. The best mischief ever. And that's when things start browning. And that's when you go back to your pot and you watch to see if indeed it is that beautiful, beautiful, that chestnutty brown. And you'll be able to smell it. And then you take it off and then you use it as indicated in the recipe. And just the smell alone will convert you in a hot second that this is the stuff that makes things magic. You live in Vermont, so it's not surprising that you use maple syrup in recipes. But what is surprising is how you use it. Can you explain what you mean as maple syrup is a seasoning? Absolutely. Well, sh sugar in, in professional kitchens is like used as a seasoning as well as salt is, as well as vinegar is, mm -hmm. and sometimes heat. Um, but I just don't understand the use of sugar when maple is, first of all, this beautiful, natural, I say very healthy ingredient. It's a superfood, but it's also, I put it in a squeeze bottle and it incorporates into things so quickly. It also has a lovely buttery backbone. So it just brings this gorgeous, you know, this sweet umami to things that I just love. And it's so easy to incorporate. Like, you know, when you're making a, a, a tomato sauce or, you know, a gravy, as some people call it, sugar is almost always added to account for a tomato not being as sweet as it should be. Maple's a perfect thing to add because it incorporates so quickly. You don't accidentally add too much because sugar needs to dissolve in order for you to get the full impact of what you've added. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you'll add too much because you don't taste it right away. Maple is there for you. And it's also, I think has a much richer flavor. It's just such a beautiful ingredient to have from everything from sauces, dressings, soups, things where you just need a touch, a touch of added sweetness, but not something that's overbearing. You start your book off with pages and pages devoted to sourdough starter. For people not familiar, what is it? And why is it so important in your life? I think most people now will at least be somewhat familiar with it because of the pandemic. It's a naturally occurring yeast that's in our atmosphere that you can harness with using usually organic or very um, life-rich flowers. You create your own yeast and it has a very unique tangy flavor. Depending on how you treat it and where you are living, it will be more tangy than others. 
I mean, San Francisco is famously tangy. It's a tang bomb. Mm -hmm. But the way that uh, it kind of finds its way in Vermont, it had it's like terroir, right? So it has its own beautiful flavor. It's very confusing, though, because you're like, okay, water, flour, mix them up, see what happens. But, you know, not everybody will explain to you when to use it, how to use it, how to keep feeding it, what you do with the feeds, like, do you just throw it away? Can you do something else with it? And I thought, you know what? I have students who I've explained this to and they've made and kept very successful starters. So I would like to write this down because this doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't and it's not, and it's really fun. Uh, you can do it with your little kids. Um, I find that it tends to stay within the confines of bread bros where they like to talk in like very like, you know, very exclusive terminology, to, like in hydrations and, you know, in percentages, just to kind of keep you away, kind of make you feel like this is something only very special people can do. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very intimidating when in fact, it's something that is so elemental and so simple. I wanted to break it down so that it was kind of like telling the story of the thing that's living around you that you can harness to make some of the most gorgeous bread around. You tell us a lovely story in your book about falling in love with a goose. How'd that happen? And why are goose eggs so luxurious? Well, first of all, they're huge <laughs> and they're full of extra fat and protein. So that's why they're just fat bombs that makes them make them luscious. But after the storm, Irene, there was a farm in our area and I fostered some of their waterfowl because they they had to rebuild all of their housing for their animals. And so I took them in and I fell in love with them. So they were funny and a joy to have around. And so I decided uh, before I get, you know, had to give them back because I was only fostering them that I would hatch some of the eggs that they were prolifically producing. <laughs> and I ended up with a flock of many Indian runner ducks and Toulouse geese and, um, white geese and I loved them. I was their mama. I helped them out of their shells as you do with waterfowl. Then came spring and their puberty and it became Game of Thrones, which if anyone has spent a decent amount of time around large flocks of waterfowl, it's not pretty. In fact, it's traumatizing. And mama, my goose, she was the gentlest little beast and she also was very broody. And that means when a bird wants to ha hatch out chicks, they kind of get into a state of trance where they just want to sit on their eggs for hours a day, all day. And um, it's like they're stoned. So they just don't want to leave. And it's kind of this kind of chemical that happens in their body. So she was very broody and everyone else was being a big bully and she was attacked and wouldn't leave her nest. And so they almost blinded her in one eye. And when that happened, I said, okay, I've had enough. And so I put them into their separate pods. They each have natural pods. I called the local 4-H groups and a lot of homesteaders and farmers. And I adopted them out, except for mama. And so then I put her in my uh, infirmary. I got her healthy and we became the best of friends, but she was also incredibly lonely. I mean, I'm with her a lot of the time, but she really still wanted babies. She still wanted them. So she would like drag rocks into her nest. She would just do, and she just wanted them so badly. 
And so I thought, I'm not going to let her hatch out more goose eggs because they're her size and they're me, they're going to be mean to her. And so I researched and I ended up getting her baby chicks that were ducks. And I, they're the type of ducks that's the most relaxed and calm duck around. They're called Welsh Harlequins. And I got them as chicks and I invited her into the little brooding room and she started shaking all over when she heard their little cheeps. And she, she was shaking with excitement and she immediately, immediately took them in as her own and started mothering them. So she and I are great friends. She has honks for me that are different depending on what she needs from me. If she needs to call me because she just wants to say hi is one thing, or if she fears that there's a, there's a predator, there's a, that's another honk. Or if her babies have strayed too far, that's another honk. So she, she and I are besties. This is why your book is so amazing, because it's not just a cookbook. But I do want to talk about some more recipes. In your summer chapter in the book, you start with incredible bakes. And you have a wild berry Dutch baby, a blackberry cornmeal cake, a peach goat cheese puffer. All sound absolutely delicious. But aside from ingredient availability, is there anything different you need to know to do a successful bake in the summer versus the winter? I mean, the obvious thing is that it gets stinking hot. And sometimes you don't want to turn on your oven. So a lot of these bakes are incredibly fast. Um, like Dutch babies are just crazy fast, as is the cornmeal cake. So that is that is very important that the amount of time that your oven is on is limited um, in this case. We are very lucky that in Vermont, our summers have not, by and large, been very, very hot, right? So we have mild summers usually. Um, and we're lucky for that. I, I just am very aware of how people are going to be behaving in their kitchens and what they're going to want and, and the ingredients that are available. The ingredients that I use in the book are widely available. I mean, wild berries, maybe not, but you can just go and get regular old berries and swap them out. So there's nothing, and I'm not precious about these things. I have my puff pastry recipe that I love. I wouldn't do it any other way. But if you can find a good puff pastry with all butter, then use that. As we like to say, being overly fussy does not get dinner on the table. You know, being fussy is very similar to perfection and that perfection is the enemy of good. What we're trying to do, if you want to speak with joy and love through your cooking, things like perfections and being too, too persnickety are just going to take that joy and love out of, out of whatever you're baking or cooking. And putting constraints on people too is just not fair. You know, it, it's... It, it takes joy away from people when you take away their choice and their ability to kind of play. And, and sometimes people need a little handholding with things like puff pastry. And I understand that. I mean, I know how I can teach anyone to do it, but it, I think it's tough when people are already afraid of baking in general. Something like puff pastry is going to be something that is going to be a blockade if you say you must use your own. Your fried chicken recipe... Sounds absolutely delicious, but you have a step where you sous vide the chicken before you fry it. What does that added process do to make the chicken that much better? So one thing I love about a sous vide is that it helps you cook proteins perfectly. Fish would be like one thing that people have a lot of trouble cooking incredibly well. And then I call the proteins that are the hidden proteins like Wellington and fried chicken, where there is a coating that's surrounding them. 
that impedes you from finding just from a visual aspect or the poking aspect that you might do mm -hmm. to see if it is cooked to the perfect temperature. Yep. And chicken specifically, like Wellington, you can have rare, so that's okay, but not chicken, not so much. <laughs> and, and that's scary, right? So, uh, so I have found that sous viding the chicken to just under its perfect temperature will get you to that point of perfectly moist and perfectly cooked chicken, and then the perfect crispy batter. Mm. Because what I find is that people get so scared, as I do, that they have undercooked the chicken that they overcook the batter. And then it gets too dark that it gets that burnt and like the burnt oil taste to it, which is just very common in home fries when you're frying your own chicken. So this allows you to get that perfect, perfect, light, crisp coating and that perfect interior chicken. It's just, it can't be beat. Fall may be the most beautiful time in Vermont, but looking at your book, it may also be the most delicious time. You've got butternut squash fritters. You've got ooey gooey mac and cheese, maple glazed carrots. What's your favorite dish to prepare in the fall? I, whatever is growing too uh, wildly in the garden is my favorite thing in the fall. And that is hoping that things are actually doing well in the garden. And then oftentimes it is squash, it's beans, it's peas, lots of legumes are happening. Also those things that are really comforting and crowd pleasers because fall is also when people descend upon Vermont, the leaf peepers. And oftentimes our friends will stay here with us. And those things like the ooey gooey mac and cheese that are just like perennial favorites since I started making it for my staff at my pastry shop, it's just, you know, no one will turn it down ever. Gesina, I could go on talking about these delicious Vermont recipes for hours with you, your donuts, your maple bundt cake, maple cider gummy bears. Those look amazing in the book. But I want to end by asking you what people may find surprising about the flavors of Vermont. Well, there are some things that grow here that you would think are impossible. Saffron being kind of the big one. I grow saffron here. It's a fall blooming crocus. So people are first used to crocus being a spring flower but it's fall blooming. And there was a man in Vermont who was from Iran and noted that the landscape and the temperature and everything about the place reminded him of where saffron grew in Iran. So he went and partnered with someone at UVM and they did a study and they said, indeed, saffron grows here well. So we now have some saffron farms um, starting up in the state of Vermont. It is one of those things that is so lovely at the end of the growing season to see those beautiful purple flowers. And you can imagine how orange, orange those lovely strands are. Mm. It's backbreaking work, but it's totally worth it. It's just a flavor now to me that I ident identify with fall in Vermont and the color couldn't be beat because it looks like the orange of the maple leaves. I mean, the two go go together so well. Another thing would be sumac. I harvest sumac here and that it's so lovely and tart and so good with chicken. And then that weed of weeds, burdock root, which you traditionally would see as a Japanese chilled salad. Boy, the burdock root here is just, it grows everywhere. 
It's lovely when you can eat something that makes you so angry. The burdock root and Japanese knotweed both. I will harvest and just go, I'm going to eat you, you little stinker. Gazina Bullock Prado, your new book, My Vermont Table, is absolutely gorgeous, spectacular. It's full of fabulous recipes. Your love letter to Vermont. Thank you for spending some time with me this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I don't think that a lot of people know that when we were thinking about leaving New York, I mean, who would know? Who would know? Who would know? And you don't need to know, but I don't think a lot of people know that when we were considering leaving Manhattan, our first choice was to move to Vermont. Oh, I love that state. It's so beautiful. And it's just, oh, God, except the winters are horrible. Some, well, horrible. They're getting better. Um, <laughs> Sadly. But, uh, uh, the winters can be horrible. I mean, I saw that the ferry is running across Lake Champlain. I saw somebody. Already in February. Well, it apparently hasn't quit this winter. Wow. So Champlain hasn't, doesn't have enough ice on it to stop the ferry wow. going from New York State to Vermont. Kind of crazy. But uh, it's a beautiful place. And uh, Vermont has a very special place in both our hearts. We spent a lot of wonderful vacation time there, just kind of hanging out, playing around in streams, jumping into waterfalls. Remember when we went to the Bristol Falls that day and the swimming hall, and mm -hmm. I got brave enough to go to the top of the Bristol Falls. It's not that high, but it's still, mm -hmm. for this old man, it's a little high. Go to the top of the Bristol Falls and jump off into the swimming hall. Was below. that the place with the leeches? No. That was another place. That we ran into a place way up in North Troy, Vermont, right at the Canadian border. I mean, like a mile from the Canadian border. And there, there was a swimming hole we found out through locals. They told us about it. I mean, it wasn't really on any map. They told us to park at a certain mile marker on the road and then go into the woods down a path. I think it was actually on private land, but they said that the owners didn't care. We did. We went down into the swimming hole. It had a little waterfall that went down into the swimming hole. It was a hot, hot day. It was beautiful. And one member of our party came out with leeches attached. Mm, her so. husband was traumatized for life. <laughs> They weren't even on him, but he was traumatized. That's true. These things happen in Vermont streams, and uh, it's just a leech. You know, really, honestly, it's medical. So, as is traditional, our last segment of our podcast, what's making us happy in food this week? Sweet and smoky salmon bites oh, from Butcher Box. Butcher Box sent us meat. If you've listened to this podcast last episode, you know that we got a box of meat from Butcher Box because yeah. I am teaching an Instant Pot chili class virtually for them. If you go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, you can see the link for this free class. And in that box of meat they sent me were these sweet and smoky salmon bites, little hot smoked salmon that was a little sweet and yummy, like jerky. It was delicious. Now, we had friends over and played, Bruce and I played bridge. And we had friends over to play bridge the other night, and Bruce put out these little salmon bites, and they were all gone. They were all gone. They, they were all, four people ate the whole thing of salmon bites down. It was delicious and fine. I guess what's making me happy in this week is lemon marmalade. And <laughs> Bruce makes delicious, delicious marmalade. And, um, you know, you can, of course, uh, cure the slices of citrus in, in sugar and macerate them in sugar and then ultimately make your marmalade from that. But there is this really easy way in which you buy already canned lemon and orange slices. But the lemon slices that are from the UK are impossible to get in the United States. We believe there's a regulatory problem and they can't come into the United States, probably the lemon industry.
industry has blocked them in some way, so they can't come in. So Bruce found a way around it. So now we have more giant industrial cans of sliced lemons than you can imagine, and he's been <laughs> and he's been making a ton of lemon marmalade, and it is super delicious. It's really good. In fact. I used some of that marmalade to make a lemon marmalade ice cream, which mm. I served with mm. a pear and almond cake. Mm. Mm. Delicious. So, good. so it, good. It was all very good. And I love lemon marmalade. I love orange marmalade. And lemon marmalade is orange marmalade on steroids because it is <laughs> more bitter. It has that great lemon flavor. I think if I could pick any dessert in this world, uh, Bruce knows this, I will mostly pick a lemon dessert. I'll pick a lemon dessert over a chocolate dessert almost every single time. It's just a thing with me. I love the taste of lemons, and so I love lemon marmalade. Okay, that's the show for this week. Let me say it would be great if you could subscribe to this show. Drop down on the Apple, Audible, Google page. You can drop a rating. If you could drop a comment, that's even better. You can't comment on Spotify. Sorry about that. But if you could just stick a rating down there on Spotify, that would be spectacular, too. Or any other platform, Podchaser, any other platform that you find us on, a rating and better yet, even a comment like Nice Podcast just is a fantastic thing since we are completely unsupported. The podcast industry is collapsing around us. All the four paid podcasts are going away. But guess what? We get to stick around because we're not supported and not part of any platform. So there you go. Uh, there's a way that the collapse of the podcast industry has just no effect on us right now. So download next week's episode, the week after, and the week after that, and you won't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.